The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. famous early medieval saying that if a Frank is your neighbor, he is not your friend. Um, And this led one uh, modern scholar to point out quite rightly that for most Europeans, at least of continental Europe in the early Middle Ages, the Franks were the real Vikings. That was Levi Roach on the Vikings' global adventures. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now here in Britain, we're well aware of the fact that the Vikings travelled beyond their Scandinavian homeland, as after all, they spent several centuries raiding, invading and settling parts of these islands. But that was only one part of their global expansion that saw the Norse peoples travel to numerous parts of the world, even including North America. To explore this aspect of this history further, we spoke to Levi Roach, lecturer in medieval history at the University of Exeter. Putting the questions to him was our content director, Dave Musgrove. Right, I am here at the University of Exeter uh, and I'm in the company of Levi Roach, Dr Levi Roach, who is Senior Lecturer in Medieval History here at the University. And we're going to talk about Vikings. The reason we're talking to you today is, uh, is a few months ago on, uh, on our website, historyextra.com, uh, we ran a little piece which is entitled uh, Eight Key Viking Dates You Need to Know. And we started with 793 AD uh, with a, a Viking raid on Lindisfarne. And our last date was 1066 when the uh, King of Norway led an army into England, which was defeated by the English King Harold. Um, and, uh, and we sort of uh, constructed a piece around that. And you, uh, you dropped us a little line and said... That was interesting, but perhaps we could uh, broaden out a bit and uh, and think about uh, Vikings beyond Britain. So we said, well, that's a, a valid valid point. Um, perhaps you'd like to write something for us. And you very kindly did. And it's been very well received on the website. So we're going to uh, explore a little bit more what you talked about. So get back to basics. What is a Viking? What does that mean? So Viking can mean, broadly speaking, two things, at least when modern scholars use the term. There's the more general term Viking with a kind of capital V, and we normally just use that to mean a Scandinavian of the early Middle Ages of roughly, say, about 700 AD to about 1100 AD. And in that sense, it could be a Viking farmer, it could be a Viking city, a Viking settlement, or it could be a Viking actually raiding abroad. In origin, though, that term comes from a medieval term, Viking, uh, Vikinger in Old Norse, also uh, witching in Old English, which was actually 
more specific in its meaning, and that seems to have been used for those Scandinavians who went raiding and freebooting abroad. And so sometimes you'll also see modern scholars use Viking with a small v. If they are normally, that means they're talking about those Scandinavians who went raiding and not just somebody who might be farming in the Oslo fjord. Do, does the sort of the, the varying definitions of what Viking means, is that a problem for you as a scholar? Do, do people kind of struggle to understand what it is you're talking about at all? Not really, I don't think. But it, it does mean that you have to be able to adjust depending upon audience. So a scholarly audience often will, amongst fellow scholars, be using the more restricted term, not universally, but often. Whereas when speaking to a more general audience, people think of Vikings as being any of those early medieval Scandinavians and not exclusively those men who went raiding. They tend to think of them being also the Danes of that period, the Danish kings as Viking kings. Yeah. Okay. So um, in, in, the, in the piece that you wrote for us, you uh, sort of took us back to a time uh, before the, the date that we said, 793 AD, um, uh, when we to start talking about Vikings, you said we should be looking at 782, when we have a reference to Northmen at the court of Charlemagne. So you better remind us who Charlemagne was and who these Northmen were. So first of all, Charlemagne is perhaps the most important ruler of the continental European early Middle Ages. So he's ruling um, all of pretty much what's now modern France, but also bits of Catalonia, the Low Countries, much of the west of Germany and northern Italy. So a huge area of continental Europe in the late 8th and early 9th centuries. So he's the power in mainland Europe. And, and who were the Northmen who were at his court? So these are the first time we hear of Northmen. So, of course, one of the questions is, what do our sources mean by them? Uh, but the sense seems to be that these are individuals, probably from what's now modern Denmark, who've got in contact with Charlemagne's court. And the reason for this and the background to this is Charlemagne has very substantially expanded his territory. Um, so originally, when he first becomes king, he doesn't rule northern Italy, for example. He doesn't rule much of Catalonia. But one of the other areas of expansion is he conquers Saxony. So he conquers this area, which is bits of the modern Low Countries, but also bits of the northwest of modern Germany. That brings him to the border with the Danes, cheek by jowl with a people with whom he's had relatively little contact and um, uh, apparently uh, no diplomatic contact directly to date. So it's in this context that we need to then understand, suddenly the Danes are aware there's a new superpower, as it were, on their borders. This is like sort of, you know, uh, Donald Trump's US has rocked up on your border, and you immediately therefore want to send out feelers. And that's what this seems to be, is it's an embassy to the court to figure out what's going on and probably to deal with some of the difficulties surrounding this whole conquest of uh, Saxony because the Saxons at times have been looking for aid and support across the border from the Danes to their north. So what do we know about the Danes and, and other Northmen prior to 782? Do we, have, do we have much, by the way, of documentary references to them at all? So by way of documentary references, precious little. So we can construct, based on some other sources from the late 8th century, a sense that there are trading links and people are aware of them before this date. But our best evidence really is archaeology. And that shows that there is regular trading contact um, and significantly intensifying starting in the early 8th century. So from about 700 onwards, we are getting intensifying contact. And that's another important backdrop to this as well. It's not just that Charlemagne's just conquered this. They have been trading with people, particularly in southern Denmark. We have very good excavations at Riba in the southwest, which is a very important point of contact. And do we get a sense at all that their society, their way of life from the archaeological evidence was 
markedly different from people to the to the south, or does it seem to be following the same sort of pattern? So in material culture, their life would not be strikingly different. Certainly the kinds of weapons they're using are not that different. The kinds of uh, houses they're living in are somewhat different, but not dramatically so. What we can say is that the political structures um, and social hierarchy seems to be somewhat flatter. So it's a somewhat less hierarchical society um, than Charlemagne's. Um, And that's not surprising in the sense of uh, uh, that being a very powerful kingdom with a very well-established aristocracy and otherwise our sense is that there are more wealthy people in Scandinavia, people one could call aristocrats, uh, but not wealthy on the kind of scale that, say, you know, Charlemagne and his mates are. Mm. And do we know what Charlemagne's response to to these Northmen was? What, What... How did he deal with them? So in that specific annual entry, we actually have precious little detail other than that they're showing up. And one of the things that these accounts we have, and they're effectively the official version of events from a Frankish perspective, from Charlemagne's perspective, is they like to mention these embassies, partly because they're politically important, but also, of course, shows how important someone like Charlemagne is. He holds court and people come in. He famously gets given um, an elephant. He's in contact with people in the Middle East, in North Africa. So this is sort of part of a broader set of contacts that he keeps and maintains. But behind the scenes, we can suspect that one of the big points of discussion is what's going on in Saxony, because Charlemagne starts conquering Saxony in the 770s. But this is sort of uh, like his um, uh, Vietnam, if you will. It takes him about 30 years. It takes much longer than anticipated, many revolts, many problems. And one of the things that happens is that the Saxon leader, so for example, um, the Saxon leader Vidukind, we know, goes to Denmark in 777. So they are sometimes retreating to there, seeking support and assistance across the border. So one suspects that that's one of the hot topics for debate here is, is that, you know, Charlemagne will have been wanting them to stop uh, aiding his opponents. Um, and they may well have wanted something in exchange, perhaps trading rights, other things like that. So do is is the um, is Charlemagne's activities, are they important in the development of, of the way the Vikings start to operate in the sense is that is the pressure that he's putting on Saxony and 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 the consequent pressure to the north, it, does that mean that the Vikings, the, the peoples of, of that peer, of that area start acting in a different way? Almost certainly. So it's hard to know exactly what triggers things in Scandinavia because we don't have local sources there. But it is striking that we have these trading contacts for a long time. And then suddenly in the 780s, 790s, we start hearing about raiding. And we have evidence of that, certainly by the early 9th century, we have that happening in Ireland as well. So it's almost really not the only cause, but it is one of the causes is Frankish pressure, Frankish threat potentially, but also with that potentially also an awareness of Frankish wealth a Frankish power. So uh, I think it's on the one hand, it's a threat that uh, leads to someone's a counter reaction. But on the other hand, there's also a very big pull factor of the more aware of how wealthy they are, the more temptation there is to turn to raiding. Mm. And um, you you mentioned the the Danes in this context, the people in in, in what's now Denmark. What's happening with those in Norway and and Sweden and the the, the other... the other Scandinavian countries as they are now, what do we know about? So the short answer is we know, if anything, less, at least from a strictly historical standpoint. But again, archaeology can help us trace some of these things. And the sense is that these kinds of trading links are also intensifying in places like that. So um, in the case of Norway, looking west like Denmark, so both south to Denmark, to places like Riba as well, um, but also to um, England, to Britain and the Isles. 
Um, in Sweden, traditionally, um, the Swedish Vikings are seen to look more eastwards. Now, we use these terms, Sweden, Denmark, Norway. These are somewhat anachronistic. They're not set kingdoms at this point, and the people would have spoken a mutually intelligible language. But the groups in Sweden, we can see also settlements starting to form um, in the 8th and 9th centuries along the rivers of um, uh, Eastern Europe and Russia heading down towards the Middle East, which then becomes another very important trading route for the Vikings. I was going to get to the Eastern bit in just a second, but so the what sense do you have in terms of the of the identity of the of these peoples, you, you mentioned that perhaps there is a sort of a common uh, identity in the sense of language, a, a linguistic similarity. But what I mean, yes, they weren't Norwegian, Sweden, uh, Swedish, and, and Danish. What what were they? How did they see themselves? Do we can we call that at all? Well, that that really is the million dollar question here. Um, we don't know that well, but some indications would be that one of the things that would be important is linguistic. So the Scandinavian language tree is now distinct from the general Germanic one with which it's related. So there would have been a qualitative difference between the way they spoke and the way the Saxons spoke or other peoples of what was what would eventually become Germany. So they would have spoken a set of dialects that were loosely comprehen mutually comprehensible or loosely so. Scandinavian dialects would have been tougher. For them to understand. So that almost certainly does lead to some communal identity, but how much is hard to know and hard to measure. Politically speaking, the earliest of our kingdoms to emerge is in Denmark. There are hints of there being some kings ruling much of what's now modern Denmark in the ninth century, um, but it's only really even there about a hundred years later in the 10th that it becomes clear that it, it's a real firm entity. So how firm these are, there are probably lots of much more localized identities that are much more important in terms of identifying with your local communities, your villages, um, and probably quite a lot of quite small and localized kind of power structures on the kind of size of a kind of, you know, UK or US county kind of thing mm. where people are looking to, and a kind of local big man chieftain there. So do you sense that the, the, the Northmen at the, who turned up at Charlemagne's court, would they have been, would people have understood them? Would, would Charlemagne have understood the language they were speaking? So they would have been able to make themselves understood because there are these trading links. So there almost certainly would be plenty of people who were um, uh, uh, able to speak multiple languages in terms of these things. Um, but it may well have been a little bit more unusual in that respect and, and a bit more out there than the people they're regularly dealing with. Um, the other thing is, of course, people in a kind of pre-modern world are actually quite used to going between languages. So Charlemagne himself uh, almost certainly speaks a, a Germanic tongue. He's a Frank, um, at least many of them speak a Germanic tongue, but also much of his kingdom is Romance or Proto-French, if you will, Proto-Italian speaking. And he must have been going between these languages quite regularly and having others um, and other tongues. They have Frisia and things like this. So people would have been quite used to sort of, I think, half understanding people, a bit like also modern Scandinavians, Danes, Swedes, Norwegians can largely understand each other without understanding everything. This would have been maybe a bit trickier, but people would have, with a bit of goodwill, certainly been able to understand them even without professional interpreters. Okay. Now, before we head east and, and consider that story, uh, just finally, is there any sense that, you know, we, we think of the of the, of the Vikings as as, as warlike and, and violent, and perhaps that's something we'll, we'll have a think about in a bit, but is there any sense that uh, these early proto-Viking type societies were any way more warlike or violent than anywhere else? No, not at all. I mean, so by that measure, they probably are quite warlike, but there's no indication that these early 
contact suggests that they're more warlike than anyone else. And it's a famous early medieval saying that if a Frank is your neighbor, he is not your friend. Um, and this led one uh, modern scholar to point out quite rightly that for most Europeans, of, at least of continental Europe in the early Middle Ages, the Franks were the real Vikings, that they were raiding across their borders. We know that um, uh, uh, kind of border raids and cattle raiding is endemic in all sorts of things. That's probably what offers dike between England and Wales intended to stop. So in that sense, they don't seem to have been notably different. They were doing what everyone else did, yeah. potentially a bit better. We tend to think of that here in England, in Britain, we tend to think of the, the Vikings moving westwards from their from their homelands and, and doing things uh, uh, around the British Isles. But as you as you alluded to, um, that's not the only story. They go east as well. So what's what's going on there? What's 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 the uh, what's the pattern of that story? So we have very good evidence, particularly archaeological evidence of settlement very early on at um, Straya Ladoga. Um, in uh, Russia, and then eventually moving down on to um, uh, Kiev, which is famously a Viking settlement in Ukraine. Um, and indeed, this group that we, we know that they were referred to as the Rus, they give their name to modern Russia and Belarus. So these, these end up becoming the center of a very, very important polity there quite early on. And there's there's been some debate at times and discussion as to how Scandinavian, how Viking they were. But it seems quite clear that there is uh, a significant Scandinavian element there, even though um, uh, bilingualism will have been common quite early on. And by the time we see them in the historical record, they're probably largely speaking a Slavic language. Okay. Um, what sort of things did the, these Vikings do when they got there? They were trading, settling, and... So that's the, the, the big thing there is the river routes through the Dnieper um, down to the Middle East. And that's what they're controlling. Is One of the things that the Viking Age of will opens up is this new, as it were, back route of trade into northwestern Europe. That previously, um, the majority of trade from the Middle East was going through the Mediterranean and then up over the Alps or by other means into northwestern Europe. And now they're going along the rivers of Ukraine and Russia meeting up, going by boat, portaging and otherwise, um, and then getting straight into the Baltic Sea um, and into big trading centers there. So um, that's probably the big draw is huge amounts of uh, gold and wealth in the Middle East with the caliphate and trade there. Trade also with Byzantium, the, the, the Eastern Roman Empire based on Constantinople, modern Istanbul. Um, and do we get a sense of um, responses, attitudes to these people from the from the northwest uh, coming into into these new territories what do, what do the people of Constantinople and elsewhere think about it we got anything to to inform us about that so by the time they're sort of uh, politically significant players and very well established and particularly once they're based around um, Kiev we do start seeing them in sources uh, particularly in Constantinople because they're trading a great deal with them um, eventually we get the so-called Varangian guard set up which is a special uh, famous uh, imperial guard of the uh, Byzantine emperor, which is composed initially of these Viking um, mercenaries. So they certainly make a big impact early on. And indeed, a, number, a couple of times, the Rus uh, attempt to sack Constantinople. They never do so successfully. But the fact that they try at all is quite a significant thing, because this is, you know, Byzantium is one of the big Eastern powers, and it's, it's the wealthiest um, state in Europe in this period. Well, it's also largely based in the Middle East, but it, it's it's the wealthiest um, sort of European um, state at this point. So, do we? Would you say that they were 
admired, feared, loathed, respected? What was what was sort of the attitudes to to these people? Can we can you well, can you make a call on that? Well, the Byzantines are used to dealing with lots of people, so they're not actually overawed by them. They're, they're, they're serious players, they're taken seriously, treaties are made, they're eventually converted to Orthodox Christianity, which is part of the mechanisms also by which um, these groups, both in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe, try to bring the Vikings into the fold culturally, politically, and otherwise. So all of these things suggest they're important to them, but they're used to dealing with steppe peoples, with raiders, they've dealt with the Huns and the fall of the Roman empires before. So so in that sense, they're not a bigger threat than other peoples they've dealt with. And indeed, later when the Turks arrive in the 11th century, that's far more devastating to the Byzantines. So actually, their borders are not threatened. They're useful trading partners, though. So that's much more the Byzantine attitude. That's quite a cosmopolitan empire that deals with a lot of different groups. They have borders with the um, uh, Islamic Caliphate and things like this. So they're regularly dealing with people in Arabic, with people now in Old Norse, with people who are speaking Frankish languages versions of Romance, Proto-French and Italian. So in that sense, they treat them as serious players alongside these other ones, which is significant. But again, there's not a sense that they're sort of more bloodthirsty or more amazing or awesome. Yeah. And what were the consequences in terms of cultural and material um, uh, exchange and movement from, from these journeys from, from west to east? Um, what, what did, that, did that mean that there was a flow of wealth back towards Scandinavia? Uh, what, what, what happened? Yeah, so they're, they're the, the, these trade links do seem to be part, and it should be said this is part of a broader trend across the ninth, sort of 8th, ninth, 10th centuries. We see a general trend towards more trade, bigger cities across Europe. Um, but this is contributing to that um, and indeed catalyzing it further in important ways. And one of the things we can trace very clearly is through coinage. Um, and it's some Byzantine, notable amounts of Byzantine, but particularly the dirhams from uh, uh, Baghdad and from these kinds of channels coming up and getting into Northern Europe in very, very large numbers, um, these gold coinages. And what they're trading in response is probably things like furs in particular that they get in the Norse, but also it seems to have been very substantial would have been the slave trade, because there's a significant demand for slaves in these regions, um, and there's much more coin, there's much more gold in Byzantium and in particular in the Islamic states than there is in Northwestern Europe, which is comparatively gold-starved. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Rolling back to the to the west of it um, uh, for a moment. So um, in Britain, we're we're fairly familiar with tales of Viking armies fighting Anglo-Saxons and and uh, and how that turns out. But perhaps we're not so fa with the idea of Vikings in France. So tell us about the great army in Paris in eight eight five eight eight six. What's what's the score there? 
So the great army is what we call this very, very large Viking force, and what contemporaries call this very, very large Viking force that arrives in the British Isles in the 860s. And it conquers much of the north and, and east of England, and it's only there eventually halted by Alfred the Great in the southwest of England. Now, what's perhaps less well-known in terms of our versions of these events, and certainly not on television in The Last Kingdom, is the fact that when they are defeated by Alfred, they don't just sort of evaporate. Some of them settle in um, this north and east of England, but some head on south to France. And this is something we quite often actually see, particularly in the ninth century with these um, Viking groups. They're going back and forth across the channel because they've got good boats. That's one of the things they have in their favor. And if you get defeated in one place or you, you, you find it starting to get tricky, you just hop over across to the other one where they're not anticipating you. So they then appear in France in the early 880s and create a series of problems for the rulers there that we have recorded in a number of sources. And the most famous one is in 885, they do into 886, they eventually lay siege to Paris, which is the most important city already in uh, France in the, at this moment. And it's a very existential moment, really, for Paris. So the city holds out, but it is under siege for months and months and months. Um, and later accounts do present this as almost miraculous that they, they survived. This may be sort of playing it up a bit, but this is sort of uh, a bit like their, for, for them, I think, the moment that Britain, I don't know, faces in the Battle of Britain or something like this. this they're, they're isolated there, the Vikings are around them, and the emperor who's meant to be supporting them is busy elsewhere in the realm, so he's not immediately able to help. And Otto, the Count of Paris, uh, famously steps up and leads this successful defense. And eventually, then, um, after uh, months and months of resistance, then the emperor arrives in autumn of 886. And this has begun in late 885. And then the Vikings have just had too much um, and retreat. Where do they go? They do continue. So the, the Great Army doesn't disappear overnight. They actually do make a later reappearance in England. So uh, it's not as simple. They're not defeated decisively, but they never get Paris. Uh, and that's quite important, not only symbolically, but also because of where Paris lies, because the Seine is a very important river. Um, and again, the key thing with the Vikings is although they do go over land, um, their key strategy, as it were, is to use their boats, is to appear out of nowhere. Um, and rivers are very important strategic points for them. And if you get Paris, then you can travel up the Seine to its very, very, very many tributaries and sub-tributaries, which sort of are a bit like a spider's web over northern France, which would then open up the very heart of the rest of the kingdom to mm. uh, raids and attacks. So you use the word um, existential there for, for the, the threat to, to, to Paris and to, and to the wider um, uh, communities there. I mean, that's, that's a phrase we'd probably use for, for England and, and Alfred's um, uh, 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 challenges against the Vikings. So was, was it as big a threat to, to the people in France as it was to, to England, the, the Viking presence? And how did, it, how did their, their response differ? I think the short version is, yes, it probably was, but the... Uh, French realm, or the Frankish realm, as scholars always call it, is somewhat larger with bigger resources. So um, there's a threat that potentially large swathes of the north could be uh, taken um, temporarily or more permanently, um, akin to what happens in England. Um, but there's not a real threat that all of the Frankish realm would be taken. But we would there be talking about a space sort of three, four times the size of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. So it's not surprising in that sense. And when the emperor shows up, they then do scuttle off. But there's no doubt that these attacks are serious, that they are taken seriously. And once the emperor has dealt with his other uh, pressing affairs on the, on the frontier, he does appear. Um, it is important that he gets rid of them from Paris. Mm.
And then I suppose the story kind of rumbles to the west a bit, doesn't it, in terms of their of the of the Viking involvement in on the continent with uh, what happens in Normandy. Um, and again, this is a, a, another of your key dates is nine eleven. What's so what's what happens there, and uh, and how does that? So this is this is one of the ones that comes with the slight caveat that we don't know 100% if it was 9-11, but we know that it's at some point around 9-11. But yes, one of the important things is that after that attack in 885 in Paris, the Vikings, again, don't just up sticks, and it's not always this one great army either. One of the difficulties with Vikings, particularly in this period, is precisely because there isn't a single state of, uh, de- of all of Denmark controlling everything very tightly. Um, these are very loose bands. They come together and coalesce, and then they'll break into smaller groups. So even if you make a deal with one Viking, it doesn't necessarily mean it'll work for another. Yeah. Uh, and even if I make a deal with you and your huge army, if in a f- a two years' time, a quarter of that army reforms with some other chaps, they may well not felt, feel sort of uh, compelled to stick to its terms. So these attacks continue in uh, northern France um, in various guises, sometimes um, in alliance with local figures as well. The Vikings could be actually quite useful if you want to get rid of your neighbors or something like that. They become a part of the political scene in the 890s and the early 10th century. And one of the results of this is that around 9-11, the then King Charles the Simple makes a deal with Rollo, this uh, uh, sort of somewhat legendary Viking figure that he will settle his group of Vikings on some land around Normandy, um, around Rouen, in what's now Normandy, with the quid pro quo being that they will then be his allies and also defend it from future Vikings. So this is the classic sort of setting a thief to catch a thief. If if you're the ones who really know the boats well and are fighting so well right now, we'll get you on our side and we'll see how that works. What religious outlook would Rollo and his followers have had? When they arrive, the majority would probably be pagan, but not necessarily all. So again, from the very moment that there are trading links to Scandinavia, there is some evidence of uh, Christian artifacts there, some element of elements of Christian cult. But we're probably imagining in the early 10th century that the majority will be pagan. That is, they will uh, expose the kind of loose pantheon of gods that we know of as kinds of Thor or what was known as um, uh, Odin or Woden, as he's known in England, um, and these various other ones, Freya, and so on. Um, Paganism is not like Christianity, though, in the sense that it's not a formalized religion with a set of credos and faiths and things like that. So there was this kind of tendency to pick up other additional deities. Some deities were worshipped more intensely in some parts. So it's not the case that, you know, every pagan from Norway to Sweden to Denmark would have thought exactly the same things or worshipped the same way. It's a much more sort of loose set of uh, beliefs and traditions that have similarities across these regions. So was that a source of particular antagonism between the, the Franks and the and the, and the the people who became the, the Normans, the, the fact that they weren't following the, the, the Christian religion? So that would have been an initial point of tension there, as in some of the settlements in England. One suspects that that's actually one of the things that changes relatively swiftly over the first generation or two. That's one of the first elements of acculturation when you're settled on French territory, because they are not the majority of where they're of people where they're settling. There might be some small pockets, some little villages where they were, but in most of these places they wouldn't have been. So very rapidly they're going to learn the local language um, and start picking up local customs. And Christianity is important, particularly from a political standpoint for intermarrying and things like this. Not everyone's willing to marry their daughters or sons off to pagans. And that's often one of the carrots um, that's used in these kinds of diplomatic negotiations um, in terms of that. So uh, there would have been these kinds of tensions, but they probably settled down relatively soon after settlement, 
Where they are perhaps more acute sometimes is when we see these raiders appearing. One of the things that makes the Vikings seem scarier, if you will, to go back to some of these ideas we have of them being more violent and, and more aggressive, it's probably less that they actually were than that they seemed scarier than other Christians doing these things and that they were willing to do things that Christians wouldn't. They were happier to sack churches. They were happier to ignore a saint, uh, to attack on a saint's feast day or on Christmas or things like this. Mm. So they're not playing by the standard rules, um, but the sense is that once they settle, they fairly quickly start doing so because it's actually in their own interest to integrate in terms into the local socio-political scene. Okay, so it was politically expedient perhaps for for uh, the, the, the Vikings in Normandy to, to consider their religious outlook. Um, um, and then they they soon become part of the landscape. They, they become the Normans. Yes, absolutely. And so we have some evidence of um, Old Norse influence on some local place names. So they clearly are, you know, farming. There are people there. They're having some linguistic impact. But at the same time, it's not massive. And it's not of the scale that we see in the heaviest, most heavily settled parts of England. So it is quite clear that they're, they're not this massive majority. They're not sort of completely taking over. That fairly quickly they're starting to speak um, a, a version of Proto-French as well marrying in um, and by the time they come over to conquer England in 1066 they're French speakers in fact the English sources just call them French they don't really see them as being distinctively Viking although the Normans are aware of this and the, the idea and the myth remains of these kinds of origins they're quite proud of it mm. um, but by 1066 that's long since another religious story that uh, that we can't skip over um, just because of the, of the name of the character involved is is Harold Bluetooth's conversion um, to Christianity in 965 um, but why is that significant well that's significant because although we have sort of evidence of Christianity percolating into Danish society before this it does often take a leader making a dramatic gesture like that for Christianity to really take over completely. And again, one of the reasons for this is that paganism doesn't try to be the only religion. But Christianity does in a kind of way that most Christian political systems, at least in the Middle Ages, are not very happy of religious pluralism. Mm. So it's an important step for the church if they're going to move from, say, having you know a small minority of Danes being Christian to actually getting a majority. So that's a very big moment there. It's also quite significant for the development of political structures there. So Denmark seems to be centralizing and have significant kings earlier than elsewhere in Scandinavia. But Harold Bluetooth and his father Gorm seem to be the first real players in a, in a sort of a kingdom whose history we can chart sort of continuously. And the fact they should choose to convert is not insignificant here because in a sense, in the same way that the Normans are going to want to become Christian, to intermarry, to play by the rules, this is Denmark choosing to play a bit more by the, as it were, continental European rules. Doubtless with at least some awareness that this is also going to assist with the other kinds of centralization he's after in terms of state structures, in terms of things like this. So he is, as it were, looking across his border to the south, to what's now the emerging German kingdom. He's aware of the fact that it's more powerful, wealthier, and one of the features of it, by no means the only one that's distinctive, is it's Christian. So this is something that he can then buy into, bring in, and do on his own terms, as it were. Okay, so it enables him to indulge in statecraft on a European level? Yeah, so one of the things that it's often seen in, uh, um, in terms of the early church is that it tends to be uh, a facilitator of uh, more hierarchical state structures, that the church itself is hierarchical. Uh, you want a reliable king who will help you. So it's very much in their favor to push this. And there is the very strong tendency in the church as well to point out that rulers are appointed in themselves by God, 
you can offer them coronation or things like this. So you can offer them a very nice additional one and they can offer you something because you as a bishop need royal sanction to quickly expand your church. So those two kind of go naturally. Um, and then an added bonus, as it were, to the side of that then is that it also then allows you to start intermarrying with other big European players as well and playing that kind of political game more easily. And why is he uh, the wireless technology? So the reason why he's why our wireless technology is called Bluetooth is precisely because he is seen as this first Danish ruler. Um, and it says in the Yellingstone, which he erects for his uh, father and his mother, um, that he uh, brought the Danes together, as it were, um, uh, and that he made them Christian, he conquered the Norwegians, and he made the Danes Christian. And so this is seen as, and it seems to be presenting this kind of moment, as it were, of Danish unification. And the idea is that Bluetooth technology unifies your uh, devices, as it were. And that's why its uh, symbol is actually a rune. So it's, it's playing off of this idea as uh, Harold being this early unifier. I'm sure he'd be delighted to be uh, to be um, so technologically gifted now. So um, tell us about uh, Iceland because uh, that's that's another island uh, that um, uh, that we don't uh, you know perhaps we overlook when we start thinking about the Vikings from our British perspective. So Iceland is uh, is is an important Viking uh, territory. What, what's what's the story there? Yeah, so Iceland is one of the most interesting ones because it seems to have been, as it were, largely a virgin land settlement. So normally, as it were, in Normandy or in the northeast of England, they're settling areas where there are other people locally whose customs they're, you know, adjusting to, whose political systems they're they're playing into. Uh, whereas Iceland has been largely unsettled at this point. So they start settling there in the later 9th century, probably in the um, eight. Uh, 70s. Um, and some of our much later accounts say that they encountered um, a papar, some holy men. And it's quite possible there's now some, uh, some evidence there may indeed have been occasional Irish holy men who went off there to live, mm. but not, it should be emphasized, whole settlements of people. So that there isn't is there isn't a society. There might be a few hermits. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about it. And so they come onto this island that has not been settled by humans, um, and they create, as it were, their own society there. Um, And one of the striking things about it is that this is um, one of the, by at least uh, Western European standards, one of the least hierarchical societies we have attested. Um, there There is social hierarchy, there are some sort of local aristocrats, but there's no king. Um, and this is really striking and very, very different. And what it's ruled by is this entity called the All Thing. And that's actually still the name of the Icelandic parliament. They, they, they like to claim they have the oldest working parliament in Europe. Um, it's not, at least in this period, of parliament like in our sense of, you know, electing your local MP. What it is, is it's constituted of the Gothar, that is the local big men, the local chieftains of the different regions. And they have the real say there individually. But any free man, and here's where we're not being slaves is important, but any free man's allowed to show up and to bring a complaint or something like that to be considered by them. So it is still, in this sense, quite interesting. It's sort of an oligarchy, if you will, but it's not that kind of uh, hierarchy with a king, with that those kinds of things. And it's very, very interesting in that sense, and perhaps gives us a hint as to what society would have, say, been like in 
Denmark before we start seeing it more in the historical record when you were asking me earlier about what would have been like in the you know eighth early ninth centuries what would Norway have been like uh, an interesting model there is to suggest that Iceland wouldn't have been identical to that but because they're settling there de novo actually may may retain some of the kind of as it were social and linguistic as well archaisms now we haven't mentioned uh, Ireland at all um, and obviously there was a, a Viking presence there you mentioned that uh, the year 1014 uh, is an important date the, that of the Battle of Clontarf. Um, why does that matter? Why, should, why is that a date we should take note of? So the Battle of Clontarf is perhaps the most famous uh, uh, Viking battle and event in Ireland. It is perhaps what Alfred the Great is and the burnt cakes are to, uh, as it were, English identity in terms of this is traditionally presented as the moment when the Irish face down the Vikings and, you know, give them a good seeing to and kick them off and so on. Um, in context, it's part of a series of rather more complex developments and tensions. So, as you say, the Vikings have been uh, settling in the northern islands of, Isles of Scotland and in Ireland. From very early date, we have evidence of uh, raids and contacts from the early 9th century. So it's probably actually beginning the Viking Age at the same time as England and elsewhere. Um, and various settlements of these then go on. They're, these early settlements are called long forts, um, go on to then become towns in some of the most important settlements of Ireland, above all Dublin. Um, and what then happens, to get us to 1014, if you will, is we have a situation where there is a high king of Ireland, a very powerful and influential individual known as Brian Boru, um, who's, again, perhaps the uh, Irish Alfred the Great, if you will, is seen as this great, hugely important foundational figure. But it's important to note that Irish political structures are normally quite small and localised, much more like early Scandinavian ones would be as well. And Brian's actually originally from uh, Munster to the southwest. He achieves this position by defeating lots of other Irish rulers, as well as various Viking groups. So he's taken the high kingship from the rulers of Leinster, and it's them who actually lead the charge against him in 1014, lead to this big battle. And what they do is they look for help from the Dublin Vikings, and they, through them, then also enlist some other Scandinavian groups. But so we do get this hugely important, very big battle, um, but it's more a case of Irish and Vikings on both sides, if you will, um, that then in later legend gets presented as the national Irish on one side, the Vikings on the other. Um, what actually happens in the battle itself is it's a very interesting case of uh, a quite decisive battle. Um, uh, it's long, it's hard fought. Uh, Brian apparently does prevail in the end, but he dies. So in a sense, everyone ends up losing. And what happens is um, uh, the, the Viking side has lost, um, the, the, the men of Leinster have lost, but Brian's sons do not maintain this high kingship, this sort of over-kingship of Ireland. They, they're then restricted more to the southwest. Okay. So uh, the, the last date that, um, that you gave us in your, uh, in your little rundown of, of important global Viking dates was uh, the death in 1103 of the magnificently named Magnus Bearlegs. Why, why does he matter? Well, I think he matters both for what he did, but also he matters sort of symbolically as a reminder that the Viking Age doesn't just sort of stop overnight, that we have this tendency, uh, particularly in Britain, but also actually elsewhere in Europe, to sort of write the Vikings out after, say, 1066. You talk about Harold Hardrada coming over and contesting the English throne. That's very dramatic. And then you kindly get to say, well, then he's defeated and the Vikings all sort of go on to becoming normal Europeans now. They're Christians already. Yep, End right. of. We can stop now, put our feet up. It's been a busy day. Um, but of course, things don't work like that. People who have had these political contacts, these patterns of raiding and political threat, don't just change overnight. And so one of the important things to remember is, in fact, one of William the Conqueror's great fears when he's conquered England, 
is Danish invasion. There's repeated threat that the Danish king might come over. That threat is real, and there's a real chance that the Danish king could defeat him and take the English realm. Previously, Canute had, as a Danish ruler, ruled England, as had his son. So this is very real. This is lived memory. Um, and Magnus Barelegs, in a sense, picks up where these others um, have taken off. He's actually ruler of uh, Norway. So he's king of Norway himself, prince and then king. But he shows a great interest in these traditional stomping grounds, particularly of the um, Isles and the Irish Sea. And so he sets off uh, on two expeditions there. Um, in 1098, he comes down through Orkney um, uh, and he takes man and uh, threatens various parts of uh, northern Wales. Um, uh, famously, he attacks in there and is, is seen off. So he's seriously threatening these kinds of areas. Um, he then goes back, but he comes back a second time in 1003, and he takes Dublin, the traditional sort of, as it were, the biggest Viking city in Ireland, and then just dies on a raid thereafter, um, with in fact one of the descendants of Brian Boru, now as one of his allies. Um, but he's, I think, a useful reminder that a king of Norway could come over and become a king in Dublin in 1106. And this is the kind of pattern we've been seeing. Dublin's been an important Viking city from the 9th, 10th centuries. And in a sense, things are changing, but they're changing slowly. And particularly in the Irish Sea, this kind of pattern lives well into the 12th century. So he's, he may be Christian, but he's, he's behaving in terms of the patterns very much like um, his earlier forebears. Okay. Now, one thing that you didn't talk about in your in your list of, of uh, global dates, and, and we only gave you space to do a few, is you didn't talk about America. And I, so I wonder when we're talking about the you know the wider span of Viking influence, uh, it, was that because you you don't think it's important, or you don't think they actually turned up there? What, there is this idea that Vikings crossed the sea and uh, and settled in America. So, well, my priorities were beyond non-British dates because most of your first set were British. Was you ha in fact did have North America there? So I was intentionally avoiding that because you'd already done that well. But yes, it's the as it were the logical offshoot as it were from Iceland. So Iceland settled earlier, but then we get settlements in Greenland. And those settlements live on into the later Middle Ages, when then we get much more temporary settlement in Vinland, um, uh, and we have um, uh, archaeological excavations at, um, uh, in Newfoundland, which provide us with some of the actual concrete evidence. Initially, there was a big question of, you yeah. know, were these sagas true? Um, but now we, we know that very much they were. I think these really capture the imagination for us because they, they show us, as it were, the closest thing to what we like to imagine as a Viking spirit, freebooting, doing things differently. Um, in practical terms, certainly the North American settlements are not very important. They don't play into power structures in Scandinavia or elsewhere, but I think they are a lovely reminder of how these sort of groups are willing to do these rather intrepid things. And in a sense, it's not so different from some of the other things we see. We do see occasional Viking groups coming in and raiding, say, you know, southern Spain, raiding Italy and the Mediterranean, not in large numbers, not big enough to be a political significance. But it does remind us that these are groups who are happy to go into the relative unknown at times. Um, they're good navigators once they know where these things are, they'll then go back regularly. But there is that willingness to take a risk. Um, that said, I should add, they don't just sort of set sail to the west and hope there's something there. It does seem to have been much more likely that initial uh, landings on Greenland were, you know, being blown off course and then going back. Um, but there certainly is a willingness to, to, to go to these places that is perhaps reminiscent of what you then see with um, European colonization of North America later or things like that, this uh, 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 frontier spirit, if you will. 
That was Levi Roach. Levi's latest book is a biography of Ethelred the Unready, which was published by Yale University Press in 2016. And you can read a piece by Levi on Global Vikings at our website at historyextra.com forward slash global vikings. Well, we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Monday when Hallie Rubenhold will be discussing the victims of Jack the Ripper. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.